Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Professor Jonathan Sadowski. He's the uh, Theodore J. Castelli Professor of History and Medicine and the Associate Director of the Program in Medicine, Society, Medicine and Society. Uh, this is part of the Bioethics Department at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland. Uh, he's also the author of three books in the history of psychiatry and mental illness. Uh, most recent book is The Empire of Depression, A New History. Uh, he's co-editor of a six-volume cultural history of madness uh, that's forthcoming from Bloomsbury Press. So, Jonathan, thanks for coming. I appreciate it. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it sounds unusual, the topics that you're uh, you're engaged in, the history of psychiatry, etc. How did you get, uh, gain an interest well, it's interesting because I uh, I didn't start, I didn't go to uh, graduate school expecting to be in this area at all. In fact, I trained in African history and I was in Nigeria in 1988 in uh, for a um, pre-dissertation trip. I was trying to scope out what there might be to research and I was interested in African urban history, colonialism. I really didn't know exactly and then one day, an archivist put a uh, report on uh, so-called lunatic asylums from the colonial period in onto my desk. And I thought, wow, this is so fascinating because these were colonial institutions built by the British, but the inmates were African. And you often hear it said, well, what's mad in one culture might not be mad in another culture. So how did they decide who was mad and who wasn't and what might be the politics of that? So that was my first book project. And then for my second book project, I uh, turned my lens back on my own society, on the United States, to the study of electroconvulsive therapy, which is a very controversial treatment for severe depression. And there I was, I, my question was, this treatment is subject to such different understandings. You get some people who will tell you that it's an abuse, it's a form of atrocity, a human rights violation. 
And others who will say it's the most powerful and effective treatment in, in psychiatry's repertoire and saves people's lives. And, and so I wanted to try to unravel this historically. How did this become so polarized? And then, so those were my first two books. And then in the uh, summer of 2017, I was trying to figure out what my next project would be. And I got an email from an editor at Polity Books, which published my third book, saying, um, I got your name as somebody who might be interested in writing about the history of depression. And I leapt at the chance because I'd been teaching a course on that subject for years. So I was really ready and primed to do it. Um, I still don't know who gave the editor my my name. I suppose I could ask, but I never asked. Uh, um, so electroconvulsive therapy, I guess, yeah, I, I would I hearken back to the, I don't know, the 1950s and imagine these horrible mental hospitals and people being electrocuted like crazy and, you know, being left with uh, fried brains. But again, I'm a, uh, you know, I'm a lay person. I don't know. So what, what did you discover when you looked at the history of it? And is the treatment very different today from old? Is it brutal? Is it, is that uh, far more humane than we think? Like, what, what do you know about it? Well, it's certainly um, more humane than it was. Um, it's, refinements in technique have made it so, first of all, in early early electroconvulsive therapy or ECT was unmodified, meaning that they didn't give you what they'd now give you, which is anesthesia and muscle relaxants. Anesthesia so that it's not painful, muscle relaxants so that the convulsion that gets induced doesn't uh, manifest. It only manifests in the brain, really. It doesn't manifest in the rest of the body. Uh, and you know, so that's one of the major things that has changed. And there've been other innovations to try to make it more humane. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's still, you know, it's still not without problems. There are risks of cognitive deficits and memory loss. And it's not really clear from the science how risky it is. Um, and some people say it's these permanent memory losses are very common. Some people say they're very rare. And I, I believe the state of the science is unsettled. That may poses a problem for somebody who might be considering whether to get it or not. My own belief is that it's uh, it's probably a, a valuable and useful therapy for people who are in very severe depressions that haven't responded to other treatments, but that it does pose risks. Okay, but I mean, uh, how much of it are the benefits outweighing the risks? You know, like what's your overall, I don't know, that you, that you studied it. Yeah, my, my overall sense is that uh, for the majority of patients, the, the benefits do outweigh the risks. There's a lot of powerful patient testimony to that effect. Um, there are, of course, people who've had severe memory losses from it and are understandably very bitter about it. Um, but I think about uh, one case that I look at in the book, an author named Anne Donahue, who says... Uh, that she was actually bitter about the memory loss because she wasn't worried about it. And yet at the end of the piece she wrote about it, she says, had she known that the, she would have these memory losses, she still would have done that because I, looking back, she got provide, it provided so much relief from her symptoms. So I think, you know, it's not something, it shouldn't be a treatment of first resort for people suffering from mild depression. I certainly would you know, I'm not a clinician, so I don't really give clinical advice. My job is to really to try to understand these things historically. But, you know, I think that my own, I, I do have opinions about these things, and my own opinion is try to find something a little less risky like psychotherapy or maybe an antidepressant first 
and only turn to electroconvulsive therapy if um, if those don't work. Okay. And in general, the history of psychiatry, um, what does it look like? And when did it really, when did psychiatry first come about? And I know it's a huge question. What are some interesting things that jump out at you that regular folks wouldn't know they haven't studied it? Well, for, for, for one thing, I mean, um, as far as we can tell, there's always been mental illness and it's, it's always been in all societies. No one's ever discovered a society, ancient or modern, across the world, that doesn't have some concept of madness or mental illness. What exactly counts as mental illness or madness has been highly variable across time and space and how it presents itself differs, but it seems to be universal. And um, that means that there have always been people treating it, whether in certain societies it might be shamans uh, or other religious figures. And in, in Western antiquity, going way back to the ancient Greeks, the Hippocratic Corpus, they talked about illnesses of the mind and how to treat them. So it's not really a new thing. Um, it became highly professionalized, as many things did, in the late 19th century and early 20th century and strove to become much more scientific. Magnesium is integral for 600-plus biochemical processes in the human body, and yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration in memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. You know, from the middle of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century was a time of remarkable advances in in medicine in general, we had the germ theory of disease established, antibiotics and vaccines. And this was, you know, dramatic improvements for human health. And psychiatry always wanted to emulate that. And there's a, I sort of I feel that it's important to stress on the one hand that it may not have it probably has not had such dramatic success and progress as, for example, over infectious diseases. On the other hand, there are some people in my field who really, in, that is historians of psychiatry, who really downplay the possibility of any progress and see only dismal uh, abuse and so forth. And that was one of my missions in the book, my new book, Empire of Depression, was I really wanted to show that um, psychiatry does have treatments that can work. It has made some progress. There, All the treatments are imperfect. There's no, there's no perfect treatment, but um, there has been some progress. And some of it's been accidental, but and some of it's been highly planned and thought out. But we do have relief available to people. So psychiatry has made some progress. Where do you um, feel like it's made progress, and where do you feel like it's it's really no better or no more advanced well, than it was, let's say, decades ago? 
you know, the fifties, sixties? Well, uh, for one thing, I mean, if you got a severe mental illness in 1850, there was really nothing they could do for you at all. Uh, that was uh, a very, very useful. Um, if you got a very severe affective disorder or a psychosis, um, you there wasn't really much medicine could do at all. I think in the very fact that we have some effective treatments like electroconvulsive therapy, antidepressants, uh, antipsychotic drugs, as well as a variety, a number of uh, psychotherapies that have been shown to be effective is is progress. Um, you know, in 1850, if you had a severe affective disorder or a psychosis, there really wasn't much of anything that anybody could do for you. Um, now, critics will point out that that um, many of the treatments have bad side effects, and many of them do. Critics will also point out that um, the theoretical underpinning, the the rationale behind some of these treatments is not very well understood. Um, but that is not as important as the fact that some of them do appear to work. Um, to get into the specific case of antidepressants, which I spend a lot of time on in the most recent book, one thing that critics point out is that the clinical trial data uh, don't appear, they're not very robust. They don't show a very strong effect, uh, stronger than pl placebo. But they do show some effect greater than placebo. And um, it's possible that the clinical dry trial data isn't showing as much efficacy as they actually have. Uh, in any event, one of my one of the things I really wanted to do in the book was um, give some voice to those people who feel helped by these medications. Because if you look at the field that I'm in, again, history of psychiatry, some of my some of my colleagues are relentlessly negative and what see these treatments as essentially useless and um, there are just too many, there are too many millions of people around the world who feel helped by these treatments for me to find that plausible. Uh, what about uh, psychedelics, you know, mushrooms for depression, ketamine, et cetera? What are your thoughts there? I'm so glad you asked me because that's what I'm turning my attention to now. Um, I'm, I'm hoping to do a, a next book about the interface between psychoanalysis, that is Freudian psychoanalysis, and psychedelics. There's a whole story about that from the 1950s. That's not very well developed in the historical record about psychoanalysts who used psychedelics as a way to try to access the unconscious. I believe that. Well, so I want to say two things about my views about it. One is that I think that all the evidence that I have seen suggests that psychedelics for um, for depression may be very, and also for addiction, by the way, cigarette smoking, alcoholism, is very promising and uh, really warrants more study and more research. On the other hand, one of the things that I think we learned from studying the history of psychiatric treatments is that we shouldn't get too overly uh, idealizing about any new treatment. Um, the psychiatric treatments have, ten have had a tendency to get really hyped when they're new and people treat it as the thing that's going to replace all other things. And then only later do we find out, well, it has this side effect or um, it's not as effective as we'd hoped. And then people start, you know, the, one of the problems with overvaluing the new treatments is that we stop looking at, you know, start use, start, stop using some of the old ones, which may still have some benefit. So I'm optimistic about what might be the future of this, uh, the use of psychedelics for depression. But 
I also think we need to proceed with some caution, recognize that there may be problems coming that we have not yet anticipated. Well, what kind of problems could be coming? What do you mean? Unintended side effects or what? Possible side effects. I mean, you know, um, psychedelics are very powerful drugs. Um, They have to be used very carefully. One thing that we learn um, from studying the entire history of psychedelics is that if you, if the environment isn't right and the support isn't right, then the person, if it, people can have, you know, what there's so-called bad trips. And we do know that in the 1960s, uh, there were a number of hospital, hospital admissions that went up in emergency rooms from people having, basically from having bad acid trips. That can be avoided. Um, if with some care, I think if you use a supportive environment, this is what the historical record shows, a supportive environment and also some screening as to who would be the right candidate for this. Because, for example, people with um, with a pre-existing tendency towards uh, psychosis are very, that's really contraindicated for um, use of psychedelics. So there are some problems to be alert for. But in a way, the other thing I'd want to stress is that history shows us that we don't know what the problems are going to be yet. We don't. We can't. An, we can't necessarily anticipate that. I'll give you an example. Um, when the first antipsychotic medications came out in the 1950s, nobody really knew that they they hadn't been used long enough to know that these this first generations of antipsychotics could cause a movement disorder called tardive dyskinesia. And patients started complaining about it, but the psychiatry profession was slow to recognize that this movement disorder, tardive dyskinesia, was a real problem. Um, So it wasn't an anticipated problem. So we don't always know in advance what problems are going to emerge. But one of the things that we do know that we have learned, or what I'd like to think we, I'd like to hope we've learned, is that we do need to listen to patient complaints and not dismiss them. There are anecdotes in my book, and they are just anecdotes, but they're anecdotes of people going to their physician or their psychiatrist and saying, I'm having such and such a side effect from this medication. And then the psychiatrist tells them, oh, well, no, that's not in the physician's desk reference. That's not a known side effect. It must be being caused by something else. And then later on, it turns out, oh, no, actually, this is actually fairly common. So um, that's uh, that's something to be alert to, too. What what are the patients telling us? Same thing with electroconvulsive therapy, by the way. Patients have been complaining about memory loss from electroconvulsive therapy since it was invented in, in 1939. It's virtually... Un- is that permanent, permanent loss or temporary? Well, it appears most of the data suggest that for most people, the memory loss is temporary. And many psychiatrists will tell their patients, you're most likely to have only temporary losses, and the losses will be around events immediately before and after the treatment. So you won't have what are called permanent long-term retrograde memory loss. However, reports of permanent retrograde long-term memory loss are actually fairly common. Uh, They're in, you know, in the narrative literature, in the self-reports of patients, they're actually fairly common. So I find it very hard to square a scientific claim that they're rare with the common, how common it is in the narrative accounts. It could be, there are possible explanations for that. For example, it may be that only we're only hearing from the people who complain. 
But I don't really find that plausible because um, so many of the people who complain also say that the treatment helped them and made them feel better, relieved their symptoms of depression. And so they don't seem to be just people who want to complain. Hmm. Okay. That's good to know. Um, where is psychiatry heading from? When you look at the historical perspective, I'm sure most people don't have that perspective. Even professionals in the field, maybe they take a class in school, you know, but that I would... I would think that your perspective, again, looks at history a lot more than these other people. So what do you see that they don't see? You know, in talking with colleagues, where do they appear to be coming from versus where you're coming from based on your knowledge of history of the profession? Okay, I can pick out a couple of things there. I mean, first of all, um, one I've already talked about, which is what I call the cycle of hype and hope, where new treatments get overvalued and old older treatments get undervalued. Um, I th what I would like to think that we could learn from the historical record is that we don't have to keep doing this over and over again. We don't have to keep hyping new treatments and undervaluing new treatments. We can greet new treatments with hope, but caution, and continue to study the old treatments to see what they might still have of value. We also, and this is a point that's extremely important to me and one that I give a lot of emphasis to in the book, is that we need to stop these endless debates over whether these things, they're essentially mind problems or essentially body problems. Are they essentially better treated by psychotherapy or are they better treated by so-called physical or somatic treatments like ECT or drugs? Um, we don't actually have to choose. I think there are many causes of mental illness. Mental illness is complex. And, um, and so um, this debate has gotten really stale. It may be different for different patients. For some patients, it may be more of a genetic in predisposition. For other patients, it may be caused by trauma and life events. Um, and that can be looked at on a case-by-case -case basis. But blanket claims that it's either bodily or it's either just mental are, you know, it's really gotten to be a very stale debate. The way I use the image in the book, I say the proponents of psychological or mind-based theories versus proponents of biological or bodily-based theories. These two groups have been acting for a hundred years now like an unhappy married couple having the same arguments over and over again. And that's what we least see from the history. And what I hope we can do, learn from the history is to break that cycle. So the history can, in that sense, serve as the marriage counselor, as it were, that can tell both of them, hey, Instead of having the same argument over and over again, maybe you could try to look at what remains lovable about your partner and why you got, why you had an interest in your partner in the first place. Uh, what about functional psychiatry? I've heard about it, and it seems to be a new area of psychiatry that encompasses more than traditional treatment. What's your analysis there? I'm not sure what you mean by functional psychiatry. Like functional medicine. Um, maybe one of the new manifestations is uh, Daniel Amen, where he does brain scan and then prescribe supplements, things like that, based on that. Um, but there does seem to be a small but growing class of, again, functional psychiatrists. So they look at diet, supplementation, oh. et cetera, and not just medication. Oh, well, okay. So, um, yeah, that's actually not, I've never heard of it referred to with that term myself. But I, you know, I think that there is substantial evidence that things like diet and exercise uh, can be valuable. But I also think that they're not going to help everybody. Um I don't, I'm not, I'm skeptical that brain scans can tell us very much about what patient will respond 
to which treatment. If you can show me uh, compelling evidence, I'll change my mind. Um, but I, I've, from what I've studied about brain scans, that it's the the evidence is really fuzzy, and I th still I think that we know very little about why certain patients will respond to some treatments and not others. Even antidepressants, we know that certain patients will respond to one antidepressant and not another one. And we know very little about why it differs from patient to patient. But I would add, by the way, I, this doesn't really speak to your question, but I would add that the fact that some patients will respond to one antidepressant and not to another is another reason not to think that antidepressants are purely working through a placebo effect because the placebo effect works by through expectation it's the expectation that you're going to get better and if you if it's not easy for me to see why it would be more powerful for one drug than it is for another why is no one uh, doing a multifactorial approach you said there was like a mind body debate that's gone stale. No, I, I, I actually characterized think... it I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, Jacob, but I think, I, Richard, I, I think you're right, actually. I, mean, I think actually some people are. I think that's the, that's the wave of the future. I think if you pick up uh, some of the recent, best recent science, you'll see people arguing for, you know, you will see psychologists who are interested in life events and trauma acknowledging that there's a biological role, or sociologists who want to look at the social context of depression or psychosis acknowledging that there's a biological role. And if you pick up good recent science in biology, they will concede that there are social and psychological factors. So I do think that uh, I, I do think people are looking at the multifactorial approach. However, there remain too many people who are, um, I guess, for lack of a better word, uh, just too dug in to one position or the other. And they tend to be, you know, they're often maybe psychotherapists who um, want to see their modality used more. And so they want to emphasize trauma and move completely away from physical treatments or biological psychiatrists who really want to treat it simply like any other disease, sometimes with very idealistic reasons of reducing stigma and making psychiatry a more seem more a part of medicine. The motivations of people I don't have any uh, questions about. I think everybody's trying to find, all these practitioners are trying to find the most humane and effective treatments. I think uh, there are just too many people that remain dug in on either side. But you're right, actually. I think that um, I think that the, the middle ground, the multifactorial approach is the way to go. And I think that is where I hope things are heading. And, and there are people occupying that middle ground. Yeah, I mean, especially with your perspective, knowing the history of it, there's never going to be uh, a miracle drug or a miracle treatment. It's probably going to come from, you know, maybe a pill plus exercise plus diet plus counseling. But, you know, why can't it be a multifactorial approach? And it's It'd be funny to poke fun of the people that only are invested in one thing and say, you seem very fixated on this. It's like an obsession or a compulsion that you only want to deal with. You know, this, it'll, it'll be hilarious to upset them and say that to them. But. Yeah, people get very mad when you uh, when you tell them that their opinions are due to any, any sort of impairment. <laughs> so uh, I don't know. I, I try to tread carefully. You know, one thing that I was hoping might come out about from my work on electroconvulsive therapy you know, people tend to be either totally for or totally against. And I was hoping that if my one thing my book might provide is a more nuanced approach, I 
I would like to see more people read it so that we could have more nuanced arguments about electroconvulsive therapy. If you go on, I don't know if you're on Twitter, but if you go on mental health Twitter any day of the week, you will see people dug into um, these positions. And if you uh, say anything about electroconvulsive therapy, you will be pursued by people on the other side. Uh, so it's, you know, these debates are are really, really polarized. And, you know, in some ways it mirrors the polarization of our politics, right? We're having so much trouble talking to one another. Hmm. Okay. A couple more questions about ECT, because I would bet it'd be very rare to find anyone that can talk about it. Okay. Um, are there different levels of it? Is it just a monolithic treatment with same settings for everybody? Like, what are the um, the can... effects of it if you get a lot of it versus a little or very intense versus low level? Yeah, I think that they adjust the um, the voltage to um, to body mass. So uh, people with a lot of body mass will need a higher dose, basically. So they it's not all the same. There's also a difference between um, bilateral, what's called bilateral and unilateral. And unilateral is basically placing the electrode on one side of the brain, whereas bilateral is on both sides. There's a lot of debate on this. It does appear that unilateral is more um, is is less uh, risky in terms of side effects, but some people believe that bilateral is more effective. I'm not really sure where the science stands on that, actually. But again, there are different levels and intensities of treatment, regardless of body mass factors like that. No, not really. I mean, they don't. For example. They don't adjust it according to severity of illness, but most people who get it are are very severely ill. Um, they're generally people who have tried other treatments uh, and are in um, you know pretty bad shape, maybe a nearly catatonic state or very unable to get out of bed or just it's been very refractory. It's been going on for years and years. But no, um, there's no other calibration other than body mass that I'm aware of. Do the patients themselves choose this, or do they find themselves going through it and they don't even know how they got to it? Oh, the majority of of ECT treatments are um, voluntary, and this is another thing that critics need to reckon with: um, that people not only are most of them voluntary, but many patients will go back voluntarily for more, having had it. If it's really as bad as critics say it is, it's really hard to see why people would go back for voluntary treatments. Okay, there are cases. Involuntary electroconvulsive therapy does occur. It's I don't know what the statistics are. There are about a hundred thousand people get ECT every year in America, which is obviously not a very large number. And but I don't really know what the percentage of that is. That's um, that's involuntary, but it is a minority that's involuntary, and it's very complicated in most states to get an involuntary ECT. You have to the psychiatrist has to go before a judge and make the case and so forth. So. Um, so that's it's uh, but people know they're going to get it. They may actually forget that they've consented to it. That can happen. But um, but they generally do consent. All right. So it's a very different picture from what I'm thinking of, you know, these old mental asylums where they're the evil doctor is hooking them up and shocking them. And that's you know, that's what the public thinks what we're exposed to. Yeah. You know, I teach um, residents at, at the University Hospitals of Cleveland. I teach them history of psychiatry every year. And I always ask the residents, when you suggest ECT to patients, do any of them flash back in their minds to the movie One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? And even now, in 2023, you know, the movie came out in 1975. 
the book was already old when it when the movie came out and the book was based on things that happened in the 1950s and even now in 2023 many patients will associate to that movie and the way it was used to control a nonconformist rather than to really uh, as a uh, it was used as a form of discipline i think one thing that clinicians need to understand clinicians are very who provide ect are very resentful of the kinds of associations that movies like that and you know, representations like that in movies and TV, TV continue to come out. And um, clinicians who provide the treatment are often very resentful of them. But it's important to un understand that that actually did happen. This was not, you know, the, the scenario in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest was not um, implausible. We know from documents, we know from patient records from the 1940s and 50s, we know that Electroconvulsive therapy was used to discipline patients on the wards. Um, we know there were abusive uses of it. And I think uh, leaving that out, we can't leave that out of the story because it's not simply a media representation. It's important for, for prospective patients to understand that it's not all like that. But it's also important for clinicians to understand that the social memory of this didn't come out of nowhere. It's not all from sensational media. And Kesey, who wrote the book, he... You know, he worked in a in a mental hospital. He saw this. Oh, Ken Kesey, I believe his name was. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. I've also read that the director of the film, Milos Forman, actually meant the whole thing to be an allegory about totalitarian societies and wasn't really intended to be about psychiatry primarily in the first at all. But I don't think many people got that message. Hey. Well, it was what it was. It's a yeah, interesting movie. Where do you see uh, the future of psychiatry headed? And again, does your historical perspective help you? Like, uh, what is the long arc of it as you see now? Well, I've already said, I mean, I think that I'm, I'm hopeful that we're moving to greater eclecticism, less re ideological rigidity. I think one other thing that I'm hopeful that we'll learn for the future is that um, we have to understand that the numbers in society are um, hard, to, hard to measure. Let me explain what I mean. If you read some literature on the subject now, people will speak as though there's a veritable epidemic of depression. And the World Health Organization a few years ago de described it as the leading cause of debility worldwide. Other people say those um, those numbers are completely inflated because we're simply over-diagnosing and just more and more people are falling under the umbrella of depression who would have just been called sad or something uh, some years before. It's very hard to resolve this conundrum. I don't think we can assume either way. One thing that I found interesting historically is that in the Renaissance, very long time ago now, right, um, European countries, many European countries, people believed that they were living through an epidemic of depressive illness, which they then called melancholy. There was this famous book you might have heard of, Robert Burton, The Anatomy of Melancholy, which is sort of uh, the pinnacle text of its time and in some ways representative, but also the most comprehensive. But it, this was very interesting for me to see that in this, uh, you know, centuries ago, people thought there was this epidemic of melancholy. People who think the increase is real often will say, well, you know, we live in a very depressing time now. And of course, you know, I, like anyone else, I can get very depressed reading the newspaper every morning. Uh, it's, you know, it's we, do, we are living in very troubling times. But I like to also remind people that the first half of the 20th century, when the rates of measured depression, when um, 
the number of people being diagnosed with depression were much lower. Things weren't so great then either. I mean, you had uh, the Great Depression, the two world wars, genocides, colonialism, Jim Crow in the South. So it wasn't like it was a you know completely rosy time then either. It's not obvious to me that we're living in more depressing times now than we than we were then. Maybe not depression wise, but what about anxiety? Anecdotally, I, I see a lot more of it than I feel like I've ever seen. But what are your thoughts there? The immediate post-war period from about 1945 up into the 1970s was known as the age of anxiety, and it's you know if you if you look at it, it's actually um, that was the period when the the drugs that were getting a lot of attention were anti-anxiety drugs, and it was really in the 19 starting in the 1970s and 80s that there began to be more shift towards depression. Here's an int- another interesting fact about this, which is that cross-culturally, anxiety and depression are seen as very, very akin, maybe even close to being part of one single thing. That is, if you look outside of Western psychiatry, and it was in the early 20th century, a very famous psychiatrist, Emil Kreplet, who gave us sort of the basics of the modern psychiatric diagnostic system. Kreplin separated depression and anxiety as separate phenomena in a way that hadn't been done before. So I'm not even sure when we that the distinction really holds up between the two. I think that it, I'm not saying there's no difference between depression and anxiety. I'm saying that they could be understood as different manifestations of a similar problem or of the same problem. Hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Well, very good. Uh, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work and um, if they get them to start reading your books, which one do you recommend they go for first? Oh, I'd like people to start with the new one. It's very accessible. The the um, earlier books were written for a more scholarly audience. I like to think they're intelligible, but um, the new book, The Empire of Depression, is really written for a broad audience. And um, you know, most uh, most readers don't have a problem with it. One thing that I enjoy hearing um, about the book is that people people tell me people who know me tell me they can really hear my voice in it, that my personality shines through. And uh, I really like that. It makes me feel like, okay, I'm being heard. So I would re- really recommend the new one. But keep a lookout for this fourth one that I'm working on, on psychoanalysis and psychedelics. I hope within you know, a few years, hope it won't take me too long. Okay, excellent. And where else can people uh, look up information, see what your research is about, et cetera? Well, you can go to my website. You can go to uh, Case Western Reserve University History Department and then click on the faculty list, and there I am. And uh, and then my whole CV is on there. It lists all my publications. You can, and you know, most of them are very easily obtainable. Um, and the other thing is, uh, people can follow me on Twitter. I don't tweet frequently, but um, I do sometimes. If, for example, um, there's an, a new interview with me, like this one, sometimes I'll send out a link. So that's another way to follow me. But I will weigh in sometimes on debates that are going on in, on mental health Twitter. So that would be another way. Excellent. Well, very good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was a pleasure and an honor to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Magnesium is integral for 600 plus biochemical processes in the human body. And yet most people are deficient. Common signs of magnesium deficiency include fatigue, muscle weakness, stunted growth, poor immune function, poor concentration and memory, hormonal imbalances, bone and teeth problems. 
Most people think grabbing a bottle of whatever cheap stuff on the shelf or at the top of Amazon will solve this. The common misconception is that consuming more magnesium will automatically improve health and well-being. The truth is there are various forms of magnesium, each of which is essential for a variety of physiological processes. Most people are deficient in all forms of magnesium, while even those considered healthy typically only ingest one or two kinds. Consuming all seven of magnesium's primary forms is the key to accessing all of its health benefits. That's why we pack seven forms of 450 milligrams of elemental magnesium into each serving of Wild Mag Complex. One dose a day is all you need. Learn more and grab a bottle today at wildfoods.co. Use code GENIUS for 10% off your order. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.